Hello and welcome everyone to Feminist Focus on this lovely Thursday afternoon. Uh, I'm very happy to have you all here and uh, to be talking about yet another very exciting, very wide-ranging topic within the field of feminism, namely sex-positive feminism. That is our topic for today. And um, yeah, I would say let's delve uh, right into it. I have a lot prepared for today, so um, it's actually rather going to be as such that I will not be able to get through everything that I have to say, um, but we'll see how that goes. Um, very importantly, with regard to the topic of sex-positive feminism and with regard to the show in general, uh, recently I was struggling a bit with how I could make the show more interactive, given that, you know, under the current circumstances it's basically not possible to invite anyone and to actually, you know, have people over and discuss things with them face to face. And even if that were possible, I'm currently stuck in Germany, so that makes it uh, additionally more difficult. Um, so I decided to make use of social media and I conducted a poll on my private Instagram. And um, actually not just one poll, but several polls. Uh, and thankfully, people actually responded, many people responded, and uh, it became very interactive. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today is very much directed by the people that responded to my poll and by kind of the priorities that they set and the, the issues that they indicated um, they were aware of within the field of sex-positive feminism or that they were interested in. So... Let's start right off with that. The first question that I asked on my poll, just very generally, was whether people had heard the term sex-positive feminism before, whether this was actually a concept that anyone was familiar with. And I must admit, um, the majority of people had not heard of it before, even though I wouldn't say it was a sizable majority. In terms of absolute numbers, 31 people responded that yes, they had heard the term sex-positive feminism before, while 40 people responded with no, which then in the end corresponds to 44% yes and 56% no. Um, I also got a couple of direct messages about that, um, but bear with me, I really hate math, so I didn't, you know, calculate the percentages, including the direct messages. I just took what people indicated in the poll. But yeah, I would say that that pretty much reflects uh, the, the level of knowledge, at least in my personal bubble, of the term sex-positive feminism. Um, I would say, though, that for many people, and this was partially also indicated by the answers that were given to the second question that I asked, but I'm getting ahead of myself, we're going to discuss this at length uh, soon enough, but I think many people who indicated that they did not know what sex-positive feminism meant they basically just didn't know the word, but they're somewhat familiar with the concept. So, as I said, I got somewhat accurate responses to another question that I asked, which kind of indicated that people at least have a rough idea of what this is all supposed to mean. So, um, some people, of course, did not know what the term meant. They genuinely did not know that, and... I would say that that makes it all the more interesting and all the more necessary that we're using the space that I have here uh, to talk about this a little bit. Okay, so 
as I already kind of uh, preempted, there was a second question in the poll. You know, with these Instagram polls, you have those questions where you can basically choose between two different options, and then you have those questions where people are able to type something in this like little box, and um, then the result is shown to me, the owner of the Instagram channel. And a couple of people, when I asked them what they believe sex-positive feminism means, they typed something in the box. And now I'm basically just going to read out pretty much word by word what these people had to say. So one respondent said that you should not be getting any hate, you should not be getting any shame, no matter what kind of sex is practiced, given that all participants consent. That was one of the interpretations of what sex-positive feminism means. Someone else uh, formulated, I would say, a kind of similar idea uh, in a briefer manner. They talked about anti-slut shaming, which I think is a very, you know, great term, um, very um, on point. Then also someone else was saying that sex-positive feminism means being an ally to all women and enjoying sex without judging others. Um, yeah, so kind of like the direction in which the responses go is, is pretty similar uh, among different people. I received one which uh, I quite liked and thought was quite funny. Um, someone said, embrace your inner hoe and don't be afraid to show it. <laughs> so that, uh, yeah, is a bit of a more humorous interpretation of essentially the same message that we get uh, from all the responses. Um, so we see, you know, people generally understand what is meant by sex-positive feminism, that it has something to do with sex and that it has something to do with being positive about it, obviously. Um, with with non-judgmental attitudes, with non-shaming attitudes, but that something like the concept of consent um, also plays a role uh, in this dynamic and in this discussion. Uh, someone else basically, like they responded in German, but someone else basically wrote uh, gender positive feminism. And this misunderstanding is kind of... Um, kind of caused by how the German language works, because the German language doesn't have two different words for gender and sex, which is deeply problematic in and of itself. But, you know, um, the German language has a lot of issues when it comes to uh, feminism, grammatical gender, all of these problems that you encounter. But yeah, this, this led to a misunderstanding on the part um, of one participant. So in the context of, of sex-positive feminism, sex does not refer to, to biological sex, but it actually refers to sex as a practice or sex in terms of sexuality. Um, for, uh, for fun purposes, uh, there, was another, there was another funny response that I got from a friend of mine uh, who wrote uh, that sex-positive feminism means reading Beauvoir and having a menage a trois which uh, I think uh, was quite entertaining. Um, so yeah, those are the responses that I got. Uh, I was very happy that so many people participated and um, that I got such, you know, diverse responses, but still, you know, all the responses kind of indicated the direction in which this was going. Um, so lastly, before we listen to the first song, um, I will actually provide you with somewhat of a textbook definition of what sex-positive feminism actually means. Um, 
textbook in this case meaning Wikipedia, but um, it's basically, yeah, it's basically already kind of covered um, by the responses that I got in the poll. So sex-positive feminism understands sexual freedom, whatever that entails. That is something that we're going to get into a little bit more deeply after the first song. That, that conceptualizes sexual freedom as an essential component of women's freedom. And in that sense, sex-positive feminism is also kind of a, a counter-movement, I would say, or uh, an extension of, of earlier forms of feminism in which desexualization uh, played an important role. And in which, you know, the, this fear of sexuality was kind of either not really discussed or also demonized to a large extent as a patriarchal construct and as something that, you know, feminists should not be engaging with. Um, so that is definitely, you know, a departure from, from earlier forms of feminism and a departure also from what, until very recently, I would say, was the general public perception of what feminism is like. So that is that with regard to definitions. Uh, now that we're all on the same page, uh, we're actually at a point where we can already play the first song. And I did notice uh, when I selected the songs for uh, today's episode, I did notice that I had never played a Halsey song before, and I love Halsey, so I don't know how that could happen. Um, so I decided that today would be the day uh, to finally play a Halsey song. Then in the evening, once I had decided that I would be playing a Halsey song, um, I saw her Instagram post that she's pregnant, um, which uh, I think is so amazing. Uh, congratulations, uh, first of all, on that one. Um, and the song of hers that I decided to play uh, is from her uh, debut album, Badlands. Um, I like all her other albums as well, but for me, this is still my favorite because that's how I got to know her. And I very strongly relate to, to quite a lot of these songs. Uh, one of them is Gasoline. Um, I know it's a very sad and depressed song, but I do like it quite a lot. So I decided to, you know, open the show with this song today. So without further ado, uh, you are now going to be listening to uh, Gasoline by Halsey. Back to Feminist Focus, everyone. You just listened to Gasoline by Halsey. Uh, I hope that everything worked just fine. Uh, I think there was a bit of a glitch there in the beginning, but um, now everything uh, should be all right. And I hope you could still enjoy the song. So, uh, back to today's topic. Today we are talking about sex-positive feminism, which, you know, in the first part of the show we just kind of defined and we looked at several different interpretations of what sex-positive feminism might mean uh, from different participants in a poll that I conducted on my uh, Instagram page. Um, and the next thing that we're going to dig deeper into with regard to that entire topic is what people believed were current issues or current discussions in sex-positive feminism. And here I did the same thing as I did with the interpretations of what sex-positive feminism means. I conducted another poll on my Instagram. I put another one of these little boxes there so that people could write in the box and indicate what 
uh, they believed uh, were current issues in sex-positive feminism. Um, so, a couple of things that uh, came up. Uh, firstly, one person, uh, who's actually also the first person who responded uh, to me at all, um, one person mentioned porn, which uh, is very interesting because porn is actually, you know, the, the entire movement of sex-positive feminism very originally originates from porn. It originates from, you know, the stance of traditional feminism, you could maybe call it in this context, um, that all porn is bad and that as feminists we should, you know, categorically object to porn because it's just an objectification of women and it's it's unacceptable um, under pretty much any circumstance. Um, and what the person that responded to my poll said is that sex-positive feminism probably rather um, advocates for positive female roles in porn and the representation of women in porn not in an oppressed position and not in the position, you know, of an object to satisfy the man, but, you know, in, in a more self-directed position, in a position where uh, the, the woman in and of herself and the pleasure of the woman also matters. So that was one of the, one of the topics that was mentioned. Uh, very good submission. Uh, thank you very much to the person who submitted it. Um, kind of on a similar trajectory, but not referring to porn now, but to sex in general, uh, someone wrote, um, which I think is a very specific response, but also very interesting, uh, someone wrote that women are sometimes shamed for playing, you know, a submissive part during sex, because then people say, you know, um, you're not really a feminist, because, you know, if you like to be submissive in that kind of a context, why wouldn't you be submissive in real life either? Um, and that that is maybe a discussion to be had under the umbrella of, of sex-positive feminism. And I think that that is actually really interesting, um, because it's not, it's not a contradiction with the point that was made about porn, but there is a slight tension there, I would say. Um, because the, the person who, who um, submitted the porn point was basically saying, you know, women should be portrayed in an empowering manner. And then the other person was saying, you know, but it can also be empowering to be submissive if people do that on their own terms. And if people understand that, you know, a, a sexual sphere and the sphere of, uh, like, other spheres of life, um, that they're separate and that they're two different things. Um, so, yeah, that was, I think, also a very interesting point uh, that was raised uh, with regard to this discussion and it links quite nicely to um, to the definition and to a point that was made by one of the people who responded to the question of, you know, what does sex positive feminism actually mean? Because one of these people said, hey, um, the main point is not to hate people and not to shame people for whatever they like. Um, and I think that corresponds quite nicely to the discussion about submissiveness and assertiveness um, and to just, you know, um, let everyone live and have sex in the way in which they want. Um, however, with a very important limitation, and that was also something that was mentioned by one of the respondents. One of the respondents talked about consent um, and that 
uh, consent, the entire discussion around consent and everything that has to do with it, is also part of sex-positive feminism to the extent that, you know, that the point of consent is also very importantly to not hate on anyone and to not shame anyone, um, but to simultaneously, you know, create a situation in which this is actually possible because you are operating within a framework of, of people who are consenting to whatever is being done. Um, as I mentioned repeatedly um, on Feminist Focus before, is that there is this lost episode of Feminist Focus, the first episode that I ever recorded, which was about consent. And uh, the recording didn't work for some reason. And uh, I actually spoke into the void for an hour so I will not delve into consent uh, more deeply in, in, in this episode, because this episode is, is dedicated to sex-positive feminism in general, but I definitely have the intention to re-record the consent episode, and it's probably going to be, you know, the last episode of, of Feminist Focus that I'm going to be recording in this academic year. That's the one that's going to be about consent. So uh, with regard to consent, uh, I would say we leave it at that up until that point. Um, another point that was mentioned, which I think was also very interesting because it's also a very current discussion, a very timely discussion, was a point about sending nudes and about, again, if this happens without the consent of the participating parties, uh, it is a form of sexual harassment. Um, no matter, you know, um, what gender the person has who is sending the nudes, even though I would say that it's pretty much, you know, a men's issue in the sense that uh, the, the vast majority of, you know, unsolicited uh, nudes that are being sent around are dick pics. It's just, it is true, there are a lot of statistics about that. You can look it up if you don't believe me. Um, but yeah, that was a point that was mentioned. And, you know, not only with regard to when it's unsolicited and when it's definitely harassment and when it's also illegal, but also with regard to, you know, when, when everybody consents to that, um, it's actually something that you can do and that um, many people do and that is very, you know, that, that everybody is invited to do, which I would say is also a very, you know, sex-positive position to have towards the topic of sending nudes. Um, another aspect, um, which is probably the last one that I'm going to discuss before the next break, that was mentioned is also, I think, one of the most interesting ones, uh, because it's an issue that I think not that many people are aware of, but at the same time, it's extremely important and interesting, uh, which is uh, the orgasm gap, which essentially means, you know, that um, people who um, have female genitalia, who have a female body, that they do not reach orgasm as often as, as people who uh, have a male body. Um, so this is something that um, is, is kind of under-researched, I would say. I mean, it's, it's rather well-researched from like the biological perspective. I would say it's under-researched from the social perspective and from, you know, how this comes about, what kind of implications it has, and so on and so forth. Um, so for that reason, that it's not as well understood yet as, as it could be, um, I think it's an extremely interesting topic. And why is it a sex-positive topic? It's obviously a sex-positive topic because 
it has to do with sex and it's about um, you know improving the position of women in sex and about uh, creating more equality between the sexes uh, within sexual practice. That's why um, orgasm gaps or the discussion about orgasm apps, uh, <laughs> orgasm apps, orgasm gaps um, is a discussion that we're supposed to be having under the umbrella of sex positive feminism as well. Um, what somewhat surprised me um, is that nobody mentioned prostitution because for me, um, one of the first topics that I think about when I think about sex, fem uh, sex positive feminism is prostitution. This may be due to the fact that um, I have also kind of uh, somewhat extensively engaged with this topic academically. Like, um, I wrote a paper about it, I read many articles about it, and um, I just find it incredibly interesting. Maybe that's the reason why, for me, it's kind of obvious that that would be something that comes up. Uh, apparently, for a lot of other people, it wasn't. Um, so with regard to prostitution, the position of sex-positive feminism is usually a position that supports the legalization of prostitution and that um, more fundamentally also conceptualizes prostitution as a form of work. Um, the, the fact that nowadays, very often, instead of saying prostitute um, or other more derogatory terms to refer to these people, and the expression that is nowadays often used is sex worker. This is something that comes from sex positive feminism and that comes from movements that advocate for the legalization of prostitution and that advocate for the perception of prostitution as, you know, just another form of often precarious, but still essentially another form of work. Um, I actually, when I prepared this episode, I was thinking it would be really interesting to do an episode about prostitution sometime. Maybe then I can refer also a bit to the paper that I wrote about this topic. Um, the paper engages um, very extensively with the Nordic model, which is a model where the um, prostitute is not the one who's punished, but um, the, I think it's called solicitor, actually, I don't know the word, but like the person that goes to the prostitute to have sex with that person. Um, so, yeah, that is that is also, I would say, a big discussion in sex-positive feminism. So, as you can see, a very diverse field of issues ranging around uh, sex and feminist sex and the representation of sex um, within, you know, a feminist perception of the issues. So, um... Next up, we have another song, and this time, as I do sometimes, uh, I decided again to play a song in a foreign language, a song that um, is neither in English nor in German, uh, and this time the song is in Italian, and um, it's by an Italian, I would say, I would call her a rapper, uh, by an Italian rapper, uh, her name is Priestess, um, she, was, uh, she was shown to me by a uh, a lovely Italian friend of mine, um, and uh, the song that I'm going to play for you now is called uh, Brigitte. So um, enjoy uh, the song Brigitte uh, by Priest. Back everyone to today's edition of Feminist Focus, uh, and today we are talking about sex-positive feminism. 
And uh, what we already did is we kind of discussed, um, you know, what does sex positive feminism actually mean? What is it about? And then we we uh, went deeper into a couple of issues, a couple of, you know, current discussions that are uh, being held within the framework of sex positive feminism, such as, for example, porn, such as sending nudes, such as the orgasm gap, and so on and so forth. Uh, so there is one thing in particular that I would like to focus on for the remainder of this episode. Um, so far, it's all been quite broad, and that was also the intention, because I wanted to, you know, introduce the topic of sex-positive feminism to you, and uh, I wanted to create a general under understanding of what sex-positive feminism actually means. Um, but then, on my poll that I conducted, that I told you about, I asked a rather specific question that kind of also falls under the umbrella of sex-positive feminism. And the question was, do you find public nudity or partial public nudity, do you find it empowering? For example, you know, situations like uh, someone laying on the beach um, or uh, also partial public nudity on social media, which I would say has become uh, a big a big issue nowadays and also a big discussion uh, with regard to uh, the recent change of guidelines on Instagram where even you know uh, a slight bit of nudity is already considered um, offensive and is already you know marked uh, as sensitive content that uh, should not be sh uh, should not be shown on Instagram um, and I limited this question only to people who identify as female. I said, okay, please only respond to this question if you identify as female. And my reasons for that are quite simple. Um, I am convinced uh, that women get shamed a lot more for public nudity than men. And they also get sexualized a lot more for it. Uh, and uh, paradoxically so, uh, very often also both at the same time. Um, so that was basically why I limited the question to women, because I wanted to get their specific perspective on partial public nudity. And in terms of responses, actually, um, I got 31 people who said yes, they do find partial public nudity empowering. And I got 21 people who said that no, they don't in terms of percentages that corresponds to a 60%, 40% ratio. Uh, and to be honest, that result somewhat surprised me. Um, I mean, there is still quite a sizable minority that um, does not think that partial public nudity is empowering, but I would have thought that um, it's more equal. Like, it's more of a, you know, 50-50 ratio, or even the, the, um, the share of people who does not find it empowering is bigger. Um, and I would also think that, you know, getting these kinds of results from such a poll is a relatively new development, even within, you know, a relatively progressive, relatively feminist bubble um, that, that I'm definitely a part of. Um, so I would say it's surprising, but it's positively surprising. I'm, I'm very happy about uh, this development, and I think this is very positive overall, but I would still... Within the context of this debate, I would still like to give some space to certain counter-arguments that, that go against, you know, um, partial public nudity and that go against uh, finding this empowering. And uh, very importantly, I would say that this is, of course, a personal matter. 
um, by expressing that I do not always find partial public nudity empowering. I'm not trying to say um, that this should be the case for anyone. I'm just saying that for me personally, I have certain objections to that. And also some of my respondents, they shared these objections. Um, so I thought it would be interesting and it would advance this discussion if we, you know, got deeper into some of these objections a little. Um, and in order to do that, um, I would actually like to refer to uh, what is the last question in my poll. And that question was, again, a yes-no question. And in that question, people were asked, have you ever heard of the male gaze? And here I was honestly very surprised by the answer because uh, I would say that the overwhelming majority of respondents had actually heard of the male gaze. 46%, uh, not 46%, 46 individuals, 46 people said that yes, they had heard of the male gaze. This now includes men and women, by the way. This is not just, um, this is not just female respondents. Um, and also um, 15 respondents said that no, they had never heard of the male gaze. So you have a 75% to 25% ratio uh, in favor of those people that had heard of the male gaze before. Um, so I did not ask people what the male gaze actually is. Like I didn't have another poll where I said, please explain what you think the male gaze is. Um, so let's kind of jump right into the textbook definition of the male gaze. So the male gaze is basically the perspective of um, a typical heterosexual man as like a trope that we put out there, who is considered the intended audience of visual media. I think the, the term of male gaze actually um, originates in film studies. Um, but it's nowadays used to refer to pretty much any form of, you know, visual representation. And uh, this, this kind of gaze is characterized by a tendency to objectify and sexualize women. Um, and here we can refer back to the porn example uh, that I gave in the first half of the show that was submitted uh, by one of my respondents. But we can, for example, also refer to, to sexist commercials of which there are quite many, um, and we can also refer to Instagram. And this is where, you know, the connection lies between this entire discussion of partial public nudity, especially on social media, and the male gaze. Because this is, I would say, one of my main objections uh, that I have towards partial public nudity and towards finding this empowering, personally, is that, you know, we often, may it be consciously, may it be subconsciously, as women, we often serve the male gaze in the way in which we choose to present ourselves visually. And uh, that is difficult to, you know, get rid of because our entire socialization and also our entire media socialization is functions like this and is built around that. And maybe for, you know, women of younger generations, this is not necessarily the case. Um, but I would say for people roughly my age, I was born in 1998 um, and older, um, for them it's very much the case that their entire socialization was built around seeing this kind of female imagery. Um, and for example, watching movies, seeing commercials on TV, 
um, that are directed towards the male gaze. Um, and I would say a consequence that this has, a consequence that this often leads to, is that in effect we perform for an imaginary or for a real male audience. May it be in everyday life, may it be on social media. And I think that that is something that can very quickly and very easily happen in the case of partial public nudity. And again, I'm not trying to say that that's always bad. I'm not trying to say that that's not okay. Uh, if sex positive feminism emphasizes anything, then it is choice. And if I like the thought, for example, that, that guys find my pictures hot, and if I intentionally, you know, present myself in that way, then there is nothing wrong with that. I just do believe, or I, I find it important uh, to, to question um, whether um, if, if one does this, also subconsciously, often subconsciously, whether this is truly empowering. Um, because you still kind of, you're still stuck within, within a structure that kind of tells you how to present yourself, how to behave. Um, and actually, some of my respondents, they shared this view, or at least I do believe from the responses that they gave, the responses that they gave, they somewhat indicated that they share this view. Um, one of my respondents, for example, said sometimes in the poll, um, because they could not decide between yes and no. Someone else actually said yes and no. And that person uh, very friendlyly volunteered to actually elaborate on that response. Um, and what uh, this person was saying was that the response that you often get when you choose to present yourself semi-naked on social media, the response somewhat delegitimizes the process uh, in her eyes. Um, and I think this this objection, this argument that she raises there, goes in a similar direction as the objections that I just outlined. Um, because the response, as I was saying in the very beginning, the response is very often sexualization. The response is also very often shaming, or even both at the same time. Um, and uh, to to put this bluntly, you know, I have heard people men say something along the lines of, you know, if this feminism means that hot girls take their clothes off on the internet, I like that. So, you know, I'm all for it. Um, but apart from that, they're usually the contrary of feminists. Um, so I think this makes it a bit difficult. Um, yeah, I think so far I, I've made understood what, what my issue is with, with uh, partial public nudity sometimes. And I think I've made understood why it is difficult for me personally to, you know, unequivocally just celebrate that. Okay, um, now I've talked a lot. This was a long monologue, um, and I'm sure that you are yearning for another song. Um, so this is what you're going to get. The next song that I'm going to play is the German song. On Feminist Focus, there is always one German song because I'm originally from Germany and I listen to a lot of German music. Um, so the German song that I'm going to play today uh, is by an artist by the name of uh, Mia Morgan. Uh, she's a newcomer, I would say indie pop, something along those lines, uh, singer from Germany. 
And the song that I'm going to play for you now is called Es geht dir gut, which means you're well, you're doing fine. Um, so yeah, without further ado, here comes Mia Morgen, Es geht dir gut. Welcome back to Feminist Focus, everyone. One last time today on today's episode about sex-positive feminism. And uh, I just talked about uh, the issue of partial public nudity, especially on social media, as part of a more general discussion about sex-positive feminism. I included uh, some thoughts about the male gaze and how that might impact partial public nudity and how that might lead to, you know, partial public nudity not being as empowering as we would maybe like it to be. Um, I got a little lengthy there, I'm sorry about that, but I think it was important to, you know, properly explain this, uh, because I don't want to be misunderstood um, when it comes to this point. Um, and, and my getting lengthy kind of leads to the fact that we now don't have that much time left, but I think we do have enough time left to briefly touch on two ways in which we can maybe resolve the tension that is created between uh, wanting to be sex positive, between embracing partial public nudity and, you know, at the same time subjecting oneself to the male gaze. And one of the ways in which this tension could potentially be resolved is the so-called female gaze. And uh, the, the female gaze was submitted as a response to the question of current issues and discussions in sex positive feminism um, by the same person that also submitted, uh, that submitted uh, the discussion about orgasm gaps. Uh, and this person is a friend of mine. So we talked on the phone uh, because I had actually never heard of the female gaze before. Um, and I asked her, hey, um, can you elaborate on this a little? Can you tell me a bit about this? Um, and basically um, what she said and what I also found out when I did my own research about this is um, that female gaze essentially means, you know, the contrary of the male gaze. You present yourself in a way in which you as a woman, you yourself want to be seen. You present for a female audience or a diverse audience that is just more than uh, heterosexual men. Um, and also... Uh, very importantly, um, what my, my friend told me on the phone is that the discussion that is currently going on is whether, you know, is a female gaze actually possible in the kind of world that we live in nowadays that is so patriarchal and so dominated by the male gaze? And, you know, even if the female gaze is actually possible, is this something that is desirable? Um, because what she was also saying is that, uh, you know, counter arguments against the female gaze are basically that it is also quite essentializing and quite cliche at times. So, for example, um, an example that she mentioned is that, you know, within the female gaze, very often what is considered to be part of this is that we portray different understandings of intimacy. We don't portray intimacy in the way in which it is portrayed very often, you know, in very male gazy uh, ways. Um, but we, for example, say that, you know, a touch of hands could be very intimate as well. A touch of hands could be very sexual um, if we if we take it to be that way. Um, and that that would, for example, be um, 
a female gaze on the issue of intimacy, on the issue of sexuality. But then again, this is somewhat cliche because it kind of presupposes, you know, this is how female sexuality works. This is how male sexu uh, sexuality works. So it's always kind of difficult whether, you know, the answer to a male gaze should be a female gaze or whether we shouldn't just, you know, be attempting to, to liberate ourselves from this completely, even though, of course, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, so that was one of the issues that was raised. A bit theoretical, I admit, um, but I think it's a bit theoretical partially because um, this is a pretty much a new thought and something that um, is not as um, well-researched or well-discussed uh, as the male gaze yet even though I hope it will eventually be. So that's it with regard uh, to the female gaze for now. And another thing that um, I also thought about when I was thinking, you know, how can we get out of the situation is body positivity. And by that, I do not mean, you know, the watered down version of body positivity that has uh, sadly kind of taken hold uh, all over social media um, recently. I don't mean the kind of positivity where someone who, you know, by normative beauty standards is 95% perfect and not 99% perfect, where this kind of a person, you know, uh, portrays themselves and shows themselves um, and, and says, you know, look at me, um, I'm okay with showing myself in that way, even though maybe I weigh uh, two or three kilograms more. Like, that's not that's not the kind of body positivity that I'm here referring to. I'm referring to a proper body positivity that is truly disruptive, a proper body positivity that not only shows, you know, girls that may be a tiny bit chubby, um, but a body positivity that shows bigger girls, a body a positivity that shows body hair, that shows postpartum bodies. That is actually something that I've recently uh, seen very often on social media, and I quite welcome this. Um, even though, of course, I must say that here, it's not my place to, you know, demand from people to present themselves in such a way. Um, because, obviously, uh, for me, as someone who's not had kids, it's difficult to relate to that. Um, but yeah, as a whole, you know, to, to try and present images of the feminine that truly disrupt the male gaze, because they show something that from the perspective of the male gaze is considered ugly. Um, so I think this is, this is definitely a way um, in which we can disrupt this, and a way in which we can be truly sex positive, and not just sex positive for people who fulfill normative stereotypes of beauty. So, I guess those are nice last words. Um, we're already kind of running over time, but that's fine because the last thing that is going to happen is going to be the song anyways. Um, so the last song that I'm going to be playing today uh, is by Paramore. You remember um, that band uh, that was very famous during uh, my teenage years, um, the band with a female lead singer. Um, and uh, the song of theirs that I'm going to play is uh, also one of their older songs, I think. It's called Fences. Um, and with that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day and a great weekend. And uh, hear you in two weeks. Here comes uh, Fences by Paramore. <laughs>